welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Jared Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only. Do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guest is Natalia Costa. Natalia is a physiotherapist academic with roles at Sydney University and the University of Queensland. Natalia has a keen interest in qualitative research and particularly on the topic of uncertainty in medicine and health science. Despite what we're taught at university, uncertainty is everywhere, from the foundations of physics to the complexity of pain. Quotes from Nobel laureates in physics, Albert Einstein and Richard Feynman, emphasize this. Einstein says, to be scientific is to be uncertain. And Feynman says, what is not surrounded by uncertainty cannot be truth. Even William Osler, the famed pioneering American physician, recognized uncertainty. He says, medicine is a science of uncertainty and an art of probability. So why are we so uncomfortable with uncertainty in healthcare and what should we do about it? Natalia is here to give us some tentative but not certain answers. Before we start the podcast, a quick note from our sponsor, Clinico. Clinico is a practice management software that's used by 65,000 practitioners worldwide. It's great for busy physios, which is why it's an endorsed partner of the Australian Physiotherapy Association and the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy in the UK. You'll find everything you need to run a successful physio practice in one place, like treatment notes, digital forms, online booking tools, customizable body charts, and much more. Clinico meets privacy legislation for Australia, the UK, the US, and Canada. So wherever you're based, Clinico will help keep you compliant. Charitable donations and giving back are a big part of Clinico. A minimum of 2% of all Clinico subscriptions are donated to charity each month, which means more than 1 million Australian dollars in total has been donated since Clinico was founded. Shoulder Physio podcast listeners can get 60 days for free. Signing up takes less time than this message. Visit clinico.com forward slash shoulder hyphen physio. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with Natalia Costa. Natalia Costa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me to have a chat with you. It's an honor, Jared. No, you're very welcome. We've worked a, a little bit together, Natalia, so so we know each other. We've just we've had a paper recently published together, which I can perhaps link to in the show notes, or we might even talk about it. So your work has been on my radar for a long period of time. The central talking point of our conversation today will be on uncertainty, which might sound a bit vague and a bit hard to understand. Why do we need to talk about uncertainty on a physiotherapy podcast? But I'm sure that you will uh, educate us on why we need to think about uncertainty. But before we get into the academic uh, stuff in the conversation, I want to know a little bit about you, Natalia, and certainly our audience will as well. So who are you, Natalia? What do you what do you like as a person? What do you like to do? And then what's your professional role? That's a very profound question. <laughs> I always feel like Alice in Wonderland when the caterpillar asks, uh, who are you? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Um, but I think, hmm, 
I might, yeah, I might um, use some of the wording that I have used, that I have heard actually previously from, you know, people who know me in both personal and, and professional contexts, I guess. I have been told before previously that I, I have that fire in the belly, meaning that I'm very passionate and determined. So maybe some would argue that I'm a bit stubborn <laughs> as well. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think that that's a fair um, way of, of describing who I am. And I, I think that underneath that, there is a lot of curiosity. Uh, I'm very curious about the world. I love learning new things, all the way from learning about art and, and history to learning about things that are more work-related, like new methodologies, new ways of thinking about certain issues. And I also think that I have a strong sense of social justice, and I blame my parents um, for that. And we were talking about parenting just before we started this recording, so there you go. Um they, they certainly shaped, of course, who I am. And with my mom being a social worker, dad being a lawyer, I think that is a strong part of, of who I am. And also, you know, not only because I have watched them fight for what is right um, growing up in Brazil, um, but also the experience of living in Brazil, growing up in Brazil itself has certainly shaped um, who I am and how I see the world. And I think that is actually starting to come across in my research and, and in my teaching as well. Um, it's hard for me to not bring these things up when I'm working. Um, so it's hard to separate who I am as a person from who I am as a, a physio academic, I guess, because I'm, I'm not practicing at the moment as a physio. So um, I think that might be a bit more appropriate to describe myself in that way. Cool. That's that's a fascinating story. How long have you been in Australia for? Nine years and Nine years. eight months. Yes, almost ten years now. Yeah. And do you miss Brazil? Do you do you go back often? I do. I didn't. I didn't go home obviously during the pandemic. Um, I luckily I had arrived just before the pandemic started, and then I didn't go home for almost three years for obvious reasons um, because of the lockdowns. Um, and I'm going again next year. So, yes, I do miss um, Brazil a lot and mostly I miss, you know, the people who I love and, and I still there. Uh, but Australia feels like home. I'm sort of in between these two two worlds. Um, yeah, I feel like I do have two homes now. That's nice. That's that's cool to have two homes on different sides of the world. You mentioned there um, your positionality and how your upbringing and your parents have shaped who you are, obviously, and I think that's the case for, for all of us and how that is now starting to pervade or come through in your work as a as primarily a, a qualitative researcher. That's a key aspect of qualitative research, isn't it, in sort of acknowledging your positionality and how that may come through in your research. I, I want to come back to that in a minute um, when I ask you about qualitative research, but what, what's a normal working week for, for you like at the moment, Natalia? Ooh, <laughs> do you really don't want to know? I am do. I getting? Am I getting <laughs> trouble? Um, I do work a lot. To be honest, I don't think I only work the thirty-eight hours that that we are expected to do on paper. And I'm using quotation marks here. Um, That's so the yeah. fire in the belly, right? Yeah, I do. I 
to work at Fairbeach. Um, at the moment, I'm in a full-time academic role, meaning that I have teaching, research, and service responsibilities. So I, I spend quite a fair bit of my time teaching, either delivering lectures or um, tutorials, you know, marking, doing the usual teaching-related activities. And then I've been doing a bit less of research than I would like, mostly because, yeah, you know, the teaching during the semester is, is a bit difficult to to focus on that. Um, but I still managed to, yeah, get some research done this year. And um, in terms of service, um, I'm an associate editor for qualitative health research, which is obviously a qualitative, as the name indicates, is a qualitative journal. So I also have some responsibilities, weekly responsibilities in terms of, you know, reviewing papers and um, finding reviewers and that kind of thing. I also try to exercise and um, do something for myself each week, um, do a bit of reading. I don't watch a lot of TV, to be honest, but I do enjoy reading, spending time with my loved ones, with my cat, <laughs> who is sitting here as we talk. What's um, your cat's name? Leora. It's a, it's a Greek name, actually, um, and it means compassion. So she's a Lovely. Little reminder of, yeah. you know, trying to be a compassionate human being. We all need those reminders. I know I do sometimes. Um, yeah. We've talked a couple of times about qualitative research. Now I think let's get into it. So I know a lot of your work that has been qualitative in nature, and that's I think how I I came across you initially. Maybe it was on were you on Ollie Ollie Thompson's podcast? Yes, yes. yes. That's yeah. probably how I came across you on. On the wonderful Ollie's uh, podcast. Yeah, um, he's great, isn't he? He is. He's a, he's a legend. He's helped me quite a lot as well. So what compelled you to go down the avenue of qualitative research? Was it something that was a natural evolution for you when you got into research or did you have an epiphany or light bulb moment when you went, what's this quantitative stuff? It doesn't really make any sense. Or, or what, what was your journey with getting to qual research? That's a very good question. And and I think it was a bit of both, um, you know, something to do with, yes, realizing that it was very important, but also, you know, some of the opportunities that came up because of the nature of what I was doing. So I guess if I go all the way back to when I started my PhD and why I started um, my PhD, it was because of the, I guess, qualitative data that I was getting from the people who I was working with. And I'm using quotation marks here because obviously I wasn't collecting qualitative data per se formally, but I was, of course, paying attention to the things that people were bringing up during um, their appointments, particularly when they were dealing with, in Portuguese, we say crisis um, of back pain. In English, we, we use the term flares. So it was through the experience of being a physiotherapist, dealing with people who presented with low back pain, who had these flare-ups that stopped them from doing a lot of the things that they needed to do or that they enjoyed doing. That really sparkled my interest in doing research in flares, in low back pain. And I remember that at that point in time, when I was a clinician, some of the people who I used to see had all the different sort of 
theories about what had triggered their flare-ups and others had no clue. And sometimes they would ask me, you know, what I thought, what do you think that triggered this flare? Why am I having it? Why now? I didn't do anything wrong. You know, I had been exercising and, and doing everything that you told me to do. And um, yeah, so that was why I decided to do a PhD. And that was my overarching research question. It was around the nature of flares and, and the triggers for low back pain flares. And when I looked at the literature, there wasn't much about, you know, people's perspectives on mm -hmm. triggers at all. And that's when Paul Hodges, so uh, Professor Paul Hodges, my former supervisor, suggested that we should fill that gap. And I was very lucky because around that time, Dr. Jenny Satchel was one of his postdocs. And Jenny had a lot of experience using qualitative methodologies because the whole PhD was on exploring waste stigma in physio, drawing from qualitative methodologies. So Jenny helped me a lot with my first qualitative study, which was a fairly simple content analysis on people's views on low back pain triggers or triggers for flares of low back pain. And that study actually laid the foundation for some of the triggers that I investigated in quantitative studies, so in case cross-service studies that we conducted. So you mentioned something when you're framing a question, you know, uh, quantitative research doesn't make sense. I do think that it, it makes sense. And I think it makes more sense when, you know, we combine these two different paradigms, I guess, two different ways of um, understanding reality and, and knowledge. Um, and yeah, so going back to the QAO experience, um, Jenny wasn't involved in these quantitative studies, but then they became my supervisor as well and helped me with another qualitative study that I did, a Delphi process to derive a definition for the term flat. And, and then we started working together, you know, in other projects. Um, I also worked as a research assistant throughout my PhD. And before I realized, I had more qualitative publications than quantitative ones. Mm -hmm. So, as I said, it was a bit of both, you know, the opportunities that came up, me realizing that, yes, it was important and falling in love with it. Um, so, you know, the passion combined with the opportunities led me to... I guess, lead research that is, is mostly qualitative. As I told you earlier, I'm very curious. I love learning and I feel like qualitative research really pushes me to think differently about things. It, it really helps me to expand my thinking. Mm. Yeah, I enjoy the creativity aspect um, of qualitative research. So I, I love quantitative research. You're not going to get anybody who enjoys a good, robust, randomized control trial more than me, but I'm starting to appreciate the qualitative um, research method or methodology where you can be a bit more creative and you don't have to be beholden to these sort of rigid inclusion, exclusion criteria, so on and so forth. So do you find that you enjoy that creative aspect perhaps or um, more narrative-based approach in, in qualitative research when you, can, when you can use some of your sort of lateral or abstract thinking? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think what I like the most is, you know, 
using the data itself. So whether the data is coming from observations or, you know, from interviews or from images even. Um, mm. So whatever the data source is, using that to think differently about um, the topic, the various topics that I investigate. So really engaging that inductive thinking. We all go to research projects with certain ideas, um, but I guess if you try to truly engage in an inductive process when you are conducting qualitative research, you try to be as open-minded as you can. And I think that's where the magic happens from that openness, from that curiosity, um, because then as soon as you start looking at the data, there might be things that you never thought about before. And if you're open enough to, you know, and embrace these new ideas, um, I think often the results can be uh, quite meaningful. And you mentioned trials earlier. I think there's a lot of potential to bring these two worlds together um, and even use, for instance, qualitative research to design better trials to improve trials even as they go, you know, as they happen, not just, you know, by trying to seek people's perspectives on the trial after the trial has finished, which is what we see um, more frequently. But I think there is potential for more there. A hundred percent. Using qual research to inform clinical trials, not just like a retrospective, well, what did they think of the trial? And sort of yes. it's like a throwaway <laughs> publication at the end of the end of the trial, which is fine. I'm not trying to denigrate anybody or anything, but that's that's sort of where qual research is used in quant research, isn't it? Like a secondary kind of analysis. Yeah. Um, I think it's different in different fields, but mm. yeah, in physio, I think is it still perhaps a bit limited to, you know, barriers and facilitators or mm. yeah. people's experiences with um, yeah. participating in a trial, which as like you, I'm not, I, I, I conducted the studies myself. I'm involved in some of them. And I think they have their place, um, of course. But I think it's important that we see that there are other ways, you know, in which we can use qualitative research, qualitative methodologies more broadly to expand our thinking. Yeah, no, I think we can be critical. I think critical is a, a massive is for me, it's the most important part of science or a scientific approach to be critical, you know. And I think Dave Nichols says it nicely that all these qualitative studies that come out, it's you're investigating pain and what do people say? It hurts. It, it affects my life, obviously. It affects everything. It affects my sleep. It affects my function. It affects my ability to participate in leisure activities and blah, blah, blah. blah. But we know, we know that, but we kind of, we've got to go deeper, I think. Anyway, so we can talk about that for a long time. I wanted to get to your uncertainty, which is why we're here today. You've written a number of great papers on on the topic of uncertainty in healthcare and physiotherapy. I want to I want to get to these papers, but before we do, I want to preface it with a quote from John Lorna, who's a British doctor, and I think it might neatly segue into our conversation. And so John Lorna states Uncertainty doesn't come occasionally, singly, or in isolated categories. It's the ocean in which we swim for most of our working lives. And he said this to a group of doctors talking about uncertainty. It's quite refreshing to hear that from a noted 
uh, general practitioner about uncertainty pervades everything that they do for their entire working career. I feel the same in physiotherapy as well. I don't think I was, I, I don't think uncertainty was mentioned in my training over a decade ago at physio school. And again, it's not anybody's fault. I just don't think it was a priority. So I came out thinking that I was a clinical detective. I was going to find pathology and injury, and I was going to institute a manual therapy regime or an exercise regime that was going to fix everyone. And then a couple of years later, I had a crisis because it didn't exactly work that way. So that's a, a very long, long-winded and complicated introduction to you, Natalia, Respond to that quote firstly, and then what is uncertainty and why should we care about it? And then mention your beautiful papers. Oh, wow. There, there's a lot. Um, to the floor is yours, there. 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. So like you, um, you know, during my degree, as soon as I started seeing people really in placements, that's when um, I, I faced uncertainty for the very first time. And I still remember uh, the case, you know, the person. The context in which um, that happened, and really? um, yeah, do you, do you want me to elaborate on that? Yeah, if you don't mind, if you yeah, if you don't, if it doesn't yeah. bring up any trauma. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> um, it was a person who had back pain. She was pregnant, and she lived in in a an area of low socioeconomic status in Brazil. And this was because I came from a federal, so publicly funded university, meaning that I got all my education for free, but when it when it was the time for us to go to placements, we had placements in the public healthcare system as opposed to the private setting. And um as expected I ended up in, in areas doing my placements in areas of low socioeconomic status and this specific woman was pregnant. I think she was about six, seven months pregnant of with with her third child, and she had a child with disability who was already around 15 and was bed-bound, completely dependent of her to, you know, make transitions, feed, and she had to feed um, the child and everything. And um, the husband was an alcoholic, was unemployed, wasn't at home most of the time. Um, She... was struggling, of course, uh, financially. So there was a lot of complexity there. And, you know, in and, my and, training, a glu- and a gluteal stretch didn't suffice for this person. Yeah, exactly. So the things that I had learned to do was, you know, deliver some education, you know, maybe, you know, you can teach some exercises, whether it's, you know, motor control exercises or just general activities or even orientations about how to do activities of daily living in a way that is, I guess, ergonomically um, optimal if, you know, follow that framework. So the things that I had learned, um, they were not that useful um, in her context. And I remember, you know, delivering my (laughs) intervention and you know, one of them would be, you know, try to not leave us frequently. But, you know, she had a child who had, who weighed, what, 40, 45 kilos and was completely dependent. So she, she, she didn't have the option of not lifting weight. So, you know, making these transitions from bed to the bathroom and that kind of thing. Yeah. So that was the very first time that I, I 
faced a lot of uncertainty because I wasn't quite sure what to do and mm. what sort of care I should provide to that woman, um, considering all these contextual factors. And after that, so, you know, there were all the situations while I was on placements where, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty, mostly because of these complex social factors that I had mm. to navigate. So that, that was there, but then moving to private practice, um, you know, it was a different context. Of course, I still, you know, had to deal with complexity, social and um, also emotional, psychological um, factors, but it, it was a bit less than during my placements. And that's, again, seeing people with back pain over and over again and with all these various contexts and Often, you know, these questions related to why am I having this flare up now? That's what led me to, to the PhD. So the PhD itself was, uh, I guess, uh, a way to cope with the mm. uncertainties of clinical practice. I went to the PhD wanting to have some level of certainty, uh, wanting to have responses. So I guess I have a long-term relationship with uncertainty um, and I do see that in the students um, as well. You know, they, they do get into the degree, of course, wanting to help people. And they often expect that, you know, they will learn like you, you know, I will learn the tools, I'll be able to diagnose and treat and it's going to work. And, um, you know, I'm going to make a meaningful difference in people's lives. But we know that that's not always the case. And some of them actually talk about how, frustrating that is because they're getting to the degree thinking that they are going to get these responses and that's not always um, the case so on that note I do think that we can do better in terms of um, helping them to not develop a, an overly negative relationship with uncertainty because uncertainty doesn't need to be something that paralyzes us or that makes us become complacent we can dig into that a bit further later on um, yeah, I want to. Can I just explore one point there before we get into your papers about perhaps physio students being uniquely expecting certainty when they arrive into physio school, either if they've come from an exercise science background or straight from high school. Typically, they they do well academically. If you get into physio school straight from high school, you're literally in the top one to two percent of academic performers, which is really hard to do. Um, and even if you come from, you do it postgraduate, it's still very competitive to get into a, a physio um, position at a university in Australia. So with that context, students come in who are really good at science, usually really good at physiology, really good at chemistry, really good at mathematics, you know, high performers there where there is an element of certainty. There actually isn't when you listen to some of the most famous scientists of all time, Feynman, Einstein, et cetera, all talk about uncertainty in their work. But in high school physics, when you use Newtonian physics, it's very certain. You get an answer. Mathematics, you get an answer. But then you get into physio school and you're dealing with perhaps with pain and uncertainty and you expect a cluster of shoulder tests to be able to diagnose a shoulder impingement in, in quotation marks and then that will lead to you know a linear treatment plan that, that will we'll get that person better and it doesn't quite sort of live up to that so 
So is that has that been your experience firstly with with physio students in terms of a desire for certainty and then how do you navigate that as a lecturer and what's the outcome been? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, yeah, like you, I think I fit into this profile of you know students who who wanted um, who got into physio wanting some certainty um, in order to I guess with the intention of helping people. But I do think that having parents, as I said, who were more in the social side of things, more into humanities and, you know, who would give me books that, I guess, talked about different things that were a bit less certain, um, made me a bit, perhaps a bit more open to other ways of thinking. Um, so for instance, when I was 18, my dad gave me a book called, um, the Turning Point from of Capra. And that book talks about, you know, it criticizes the Cartesian model of healthcare, for instance. Ooh. It talks about um, the need for an ecological approach. Um, it goes on and on on many different societal issues. But I think that really helped me to perhaps be a bit more flexible in my thinking. I do notice that, yes, um, I, I often, students often, you know, ask these binary questions. If we do this, the outcome is that, do I do this or that? Or what is the exact order in which you want me to do the clinical assessment? Yeah. So, you know, they, they often want the certainty of, you know, all the, th all the way from the order in which they should do things in terms of what to do if they get outcome A versus B. I don't blame them for that i think as it said it comes from maybe you know it's that is influenced by high school and how they're taught and the things that we learn um even the way in which we assess right um, yes to to portray certainty in both um you know both in high school and also later on you know in higher education i would love to so there is a a lecturer in norway Used, um, got his surname, um, used Witchen, I think. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he did look at the profile of physics students, um, in terms of their ontological and epistemological mm. ways of, you know, understanding reality, understanding knowledge. Can you quickly um, just define ontology and epistemology yeah. for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So, ontology, by ontology, I mean, ways of understanding reality. So for instance, do we think that there is only one reality or do you think that there are multiple realities out there? Um, and and by, on, so that's a very simplistic way of defining ontology and a very simplistic way of defining epistemology would be, you know, do we think that there is one way of knowing? So if we conduct the trial in a way that is, you know, as as biased as we possibly can, uh, we'll find one truth and, and that's the absolute truth. And an alternative view to that would be this view that there are multiple truths and that knowledge and truth can change. There are dynamic um, concepts that can change depending on context. Um, and there isn't a single truth. Um, there isn't a single way of knowing things. Beautiful. So, yeah, I can't. I can remember the exact findings of use um, studies, 
Um, I'll link to it in the show yeah, notes as well. Yeah, but it's it's interesting. Um, I think it would be interesting even, I would love to do that research actually in Australia to see, you know, what is the ontological or and or epistemological profile of people who get into physio, you know, in terms of their ways of understanding reality. Totally. Not I assume a lot of it would be just objective realism which is fine there's a there's a single world and we we derive knowledge of that world via clinical trials and that's you that sort of holds over time you know which is which is that would have been me five years ago even that's still i'm still a realist i think but i i think my yeah my theory of knowledge will be that there's sort of many ways to come to know about reality you know and and based on your context and where you come from so so that would be my bias perhaps which is okay and i i I, we don't want to denigrate right anybody's belief system or what they think about the world that's the beauty of qual research we we appreciate that yeah i'm still navigating these things myself and, and trying to reconcile different ways of understanding reality different ways of yeah producing knowledge as well um but yes coming back to the student side of things it, it would be interesting to see you know what sort of profile they have but anecdotally yes i do think that the students who tend to get into physio they they have um i guess this this um they're thirsty <laughs> for for certainty and yeah and then I think sometimes they struggle to think in non-linear ways, um, mm. but maybe that's not just limited to physics students, right? Maybe that's mm. just people overall. I don't know. Yeah, I would say most of the people who come from sciences and, and mathematics backgrounds in high school would be would go that way. So your engineering students, your medicine students, your physio students, so on and so forth. Your compute IT people, I think they would all be along those lines. And unless you've had any exposure to philosophy or arts or literature or maybe music or something, then you're not really going to think too much about that stuff. So for me, I used to be like, not revolted, but I used to be like, when somebody used to mention subjectivism and relativism and all all that sort of stuff, it used to just like (laughs) make me feel a bit funny because I'm like, ah, there needs to be an answer. Like, don't, we can't just be fluffy with these questions. There has yeah. to be some certainty. It took me a long time to come around. But anyway, so what I'm trying to say is it's it's, it's hard and I have a lot of sympathy for people going through it. Yeah, and maybe that's that's what, what we could do, you know, expose health sciences students, not only physios, to more of these, um, you know, humanities subjects or units sure. uh, or topics or even, you know, social sciences bringing them in Mm. i think that could offer a lot of potential because i did have the opportunity to teach social science students and also have policy students who may come from different backgrounds and yes i do feel like they they make that shift um somewhat yeah a bit more easily they seem to be a bit more comfortable um, overall again it's complicated to generalize but you know i feel bad for doing that but yeah i can see how there is a different way of of dealing with uncertainty and, and complexity in you know in different cohorts well let's go to one of your papers now the ubiquity of uncertainty where you actually investigate or explore how clinicians i think cope with uncertainty in clinical practice 
that's a, a nice segue, I think. So do you mind just talking, sort of introducing the paper and then perhaps exploring what clinicians do when faced or confronted with uncertainty? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that study was sort of like a follow-up from the first one where we just observed um, clinicians, you know, during their clinical encounters with people who presented with low back pain, but we didn't really talk to them. So it, it was purely, mostly purely observing them, you know, and observing care as they came forward. And then we looked at the literature and there wasn't a lot about clinicians' experiences navigating uncertainty. So I studied, for instance, interviews or focus groups where they actually talk about it. So that's why we conducted that one. And these, in this study, we took a both qualitative approach, which in a nutshell means that we use theory to think with the data or data to think with theory to produce a new way of understanding a phenomenon, which in this case was the uncertainty that these clinicians navigate with people who present with low back pain. So we conducted interviews with them, 22 of them, and that wasn't limited to physios, um, to be honest. It was different clinicians, including pain specialists and psychologists, OTs. So there, there were a range of different clinicians there. There were some, doc- and- was there some doctors as well, sorry. Yes, there a, yes, yeah. yes. Is there a surgeon there, even, maybe? There was one, yeah, yeah, there was one That's surgeon. That's cool. Yeah. And in that study, we used, so I mentioned that it was a post-qualitative a- approach, meaning that, as I said, we used theory, and the theory that we used was Moll's um, theories on the logic of care. And in her book, she contrasts the logic of choice with the logic of care. Again, I'll try to summarize these concepts, uh, but you know, if you really want to understand them better, I would strongly recommend reading the book because um, it's quite fascinating. I learned a lot by reading it. But in a nutshell, the logic of choice is this linear process where we as clinicians, we limit ourselves to using instruments and presenting facts and informing patients about, you know, for instance, prognosis or diagnosis, just so they can make decisions about what course they should take. So in this framework of thinking, knowledge is a collection of facts and, and certainty, right? You, you want to increase certainty. And in contrast, in the logic of care, clinicians don't really treat facts as neutral information. So even the idea of facts can be challenged. And instead, clinicians try to attend to values or broader contextual factors that make their care practices a bit more flexible, a bit more adaptable, and even a bit more resilient. So it's it's not so much about producing certainty. It's more about embracing uncertainty and trying to navigate care in a way that is attuned, for instance, with patients' emotions, is attuned with their context. So when we looked at this interview data, we looked at the data with these two different concepts in mind. And you you asked me earlier, you know, how would could we define certainty? And I think it is important 
important to highlight that is in this specific study, we didn't really define uncertainty for these clinicians. Um, we took a very, we didn't want to limit them to a particular definition. So we let them, you know, interpret uncertainty as they wanted. So we took a, a broader approach. And in that study, it was quite interesting. Um, surprise, surprise. They described uh, quite a range of contexts where they experienced uncertainty. And these uncertainties, they were often entangled with um, aspects like diagnosis, prognosis, and, and treatment. So they were entangled with this, I guess, biomedical aspects. But they were often related to human and non-human factors. So, for instance, they described navigating uncertainty when they were trying to consider patients' personal and social contexts, when they were trying to make therapeutic decisions, so making ethical considerations about whether or not they should give a certain treatment, such as nerve ablation, for instance. Um, the pain specialist reflected about that. They talked about feeling uncertain when trying to navigate emotions, when trying to navigate mental health challenges, when communicating with patients, even when communicating, you know, things that we are encouraged to communicate based on the latest evidence, uh, when they were even trying to, I guess, educate patients, when they were trying to understand the roles of different clinicians when they were trying to navigate patient expectations of treatment. So there was a really wide range of, you know, contexts in which they talked about navigating uncertainty. And you just linking back to the quote that you used earlier. So that quote highlights how, how it's, it's it's everywhere, right? That's essentially what the author is saying. And that was exactly what the clinicians that we interviewed said. That is everywhere in what they do. It's like their bread and butter. And that's why, um, I guess, the one of the main findings of our study is that it is ubiquitous in clinical practice. It, it's everywhere and is not limited to this I guess, more mainstream biomedical aspects such as diagnosis, prognosis, treatment effectiveness is a bit broader than that. Mm -hmm. um, and from, I don't know if you want me to elaborate on a specific examples of the of the paper, just to speak more broadly. Yeah, broadly is good. I think, so what you're saying, it sounds like every aspect of the therapeutic or clinical interaction is imbued with uncertainty, hence ubiquitous. You can't escape it. It's omnipresent. It's it's everywhere. And so what do, what do we do, Natalia, in this situation <laughs> where we are, where uncertainty is everywhere? We're not really trained for that. And so we go from a certain approach in physio school to an uncertain world where it's messy and complicated and complex. Do we, like, firstly, can we resolve uncertainty by knowing more? I think I know what you're going to say here, like reading more research or accumulating facts and, and knowledge. Or should we just yield to the fact that uncertainty is everywhere and accept it and try and 
um, incorporate that into our practice as best we can? And if that's your answer, then how, how do we do that? Yeah, it's a, I think it's a bit of both. Um, so going back to that paper, thinking through the data with Anne-Marie Moll's logic of care in mind, it really helped us to see how they did embrace uncertainty. They seem to be more attuned with the knowledge from people's lives, right? From their complex contexts. And they seem to be a bit more prone to attend to things like emotion and frustration when they took the time to acknowledge that uncertainty was there. So what does that look like in 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 practice, like acknowledging emotions and and all of those things? Is yeah. that just listening, or is that what, what does that actually look like? Okay, I might give you an example from the paper yep. to give you an idea and give listeners an idea, and then I can expand on that a bit further. So we know that guidelines recommend that people should return to work as soon as possible, right? And um, Even if a few years have passed, people are always encouraged to return to work. We know that that is associated with um, bad outcomes for people who present with low back pain. And that um, when they don't, when, you know, when they stay out of work for too long, this is often um, associated with some not so good outcomes when it comes to disability and, um, and pain and quality of life and many other outcomes. So this is something that um, because we have the evidence for it, it is clinicians are encouraged to tell people to return to work. But this specific clinician reflected about a scenario where um, this person who he was working with had been out of work for a couple of years, but things were starting to improve after a couple of years to the point where this person was considering to return to work. And at the same time, he was very fearful because he was on a pension. If I return to work, I might lose my pension. I have been Mm. out of work. I'll need to reskill. You know, people who see my resume that I have been out of work for many years, you know, even the fact that I I have had chronic pain, maybe they're going on my employability. So he was very concerned, he, feeling very uncertain about, you know, is this really the best decision, despite of me feeling better? You know, there are all these things that um, might make things a bit more complicated. And rather than simply encouraging that person, no, absolutely, you should return to work, that clinician actually acknowledged, yes, it, I can understand why you are you know, concerned, it's natural. Yes, there are a lot of uncertainties. You need to upskill. You need to put your CV together. Yes, you may lose your pension. And, you know, because this this person was worried, what if I have a flare-up and my pain gets worse again and then I lost my pension and may not be able to get it again. So there were many concerns there, many uncertainties. And rather than simply saying, yes, let's do it, you know, I'll support you um, and purely encouraging the person to return to work. He said, you know, yes, he acknowledged that there was a lot of uncertainty, but if you are willing to do that, I'm with you on that journey. I'll mm. help you throughout this mm. return to work journey. So I think that's a really classic example that it wasn't just applying, uh, sorry, it wasn't just applying 
the evidence and saying, yes, return to work. It was making time to acknowledge these uncertainties um, and also establish that partnership. You know, you're not alone in this. I'll, I'll support you to the best yeah, of my ability. That's, that's really powerful. Yeah, Acknowledging, validating, supporting, not just going through the motions and saying, well, this guideline says go back to work. It's associated with better outcomes. Totally. Seeing the person rather than the guideline. That's really important. Yeah. So I think I think that's one of the examples. Mm. And um, there are many other things that I could highlight here based on the research that I have done and, you know, what I have learned from people with back pain mm. and also what I have learned from these clinicians. So from the perspective of people with low back pain, again, their uncertainties don't seem to be limited to these biomedical factors. They actually mm. feel very uncertain about what is going to happen over time, even when clinicians actually sell certainty. For instance, some clinicians sell the certainty that you are going to get worse because you're aging and you mm. have osteoarthritis, you're mm. going to get, your back pain is going to get worse over time. Mm. So that certainty actually triggers a lot of uncertainty about what future with back pain may look like. So, mm. You know, when we are talking about certainty and uncertainty, it's very important that we reflect about what certainties and uncertainties that we're referring to. Um, because you may think that by giving certainty, you know, you are reducing uncertainty. But in that case, if you tell someone your pain is going to get worse, you're doomed to being pain for the rest of your life, um, that is actually creating other uncertainties that's so true yeah it's a double-edged sword isn't it yeah and then uh, um on that context in that context they were also um they also described uncertainties related to you know not feeling like they were being taken seriously by clinicians Mm. or even questioning are clinicians really able to help me are they willing Mm. to you know am i going to put myself through more pain and spend more money for nothing you know is 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 this going to is this new treatment going to make me feel better really Mm. or am i putting myself through you know more pain and more financial strain unnecessarily um so when they were describing all these different contexts in which they experienced uncertainty, you know, uncertainty about whether you're taking being taken seriously, uncertainty about whether clinicians can help or not, uncertainty about the future, they often talked about the importance of clinicians being honest in face of uncertainty. So, mm. you know, taking the time to acknowledge it, being honest, and um, even suggesting what the latest evidence based on population based studies suggests these things can be helpful coming up with a plan you know we don't need to let uncertainty paralyze us in fact there's a really nice quote from Anne-Marie Maud that says uncertainty doesn't preclude action so it shouldn't Mm. paralyze us we can that's a great quote I love that that's going to be that might be the headline of this chat today can you say that again uh Say that again, sorry. What, what's the quote? Um, doubt, uncertainty does not play good action. Beautiful. Yeah, it doesn't need to stop us. Because I, I think, so clinical practice for me is is based on trial and error, 
And I think that's okay, right? Because we have incomplete knowledge about a subjective, private, first-person experience, which is pain. And so they come to us and they they describe their experience and then we have limited resources really to try and help that person with pain, especially in physical therapies, right? We have often physical interventions and that's the nature of it. So then we try some stuff, right? We Firstly, you establish a relationship, you you listen, you validate, you support, and then you try some stuff. Now, people will try different things based on what their approach is, and that's fine. It might be a manual approach, an exercise approach, or a psychologically informed approach. And then you sort of monitor that. You conduct a little in one end of one experiment, and you see how that person goes over a week or two or more. And so even, even that approach is imbued with uncertainty, right? Because you don't know the answer. You try something. And I think the best clinicians are, which kind of goes to that quote, is they try something, but then they they honestly reflect on it. And then they go, okay, it's maybe not working. Let's try something else. Or the patient flared up, let's try something else. They don't just rigidly stick to their approach. And then if the person doesn't get better, they blame the person and not their approach, if you know what I mean. So they they really honestly and intellectually reflect on the situation. And so so all of that is 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 pervaded with doubt and uncertainty and not knowing the answer straight away, but it doesn't prevent action, which I think is the really important point that you alluded to. Do you want to expand on that at all? Yeah, you, t- you talked about um, re- reflecting, right? Um, and I do agree that it's very important that we as clinicians, well, as people <laughs> overall, uh, reflect about, you know, I uh, tried treatment A, didn't work, maybe I should try treatment B, or was it something related to the dosage? So reflecting about these aspects, therapeutic aspects are important, as well as reflecting about, you know, I was, in fact, that was one uncertainty that um, some of the participants from the qualitative study talked about, Um and, and did I deliver the message? Did I communicate the message in a way that was, you know, useful? Or could I have tweaked my words a little bit in order to convey what I really wanted to convey? So, you know, reflecting even about your communication is very important. Mm. But I think reflecting about, and maybe, yeah, I'll just say, I, would, I should say, engaging in reflexivity is just as important as engaging in this reflective practice. And by reflexivity, I mean really taking the time to reflect about the assumptions of some of our choices or the motivations for some of our choices. For instance, there is a quote uh, that I really like uh, from Professor Barbara Gibson. It's actually a question that illustrates reflexivity. And the question is, what am I doing when I'm doing what I think I'm doing? Why am I doing this? Who am I doing this for? Mm-hmm. Um, so if we think about a context of uncertainty, you know, why am I offering this approach? You know, why am I so uncomfortable with this uncertainty? Um, so critically reflecting about, you know, why do we feel so uncomfortable with uncertainty in first yeah. place? Um, I think it's very important, and I think that it's one of the ways to to navigate uncertainty in a more skillful manner. It's mm. engaging this, yes, reflective questions, but also engaging in reflexivity, um, which goes a bit 
beyond and is really about scrutinizing our own yeah. ideas and assumptions. And so I'm I'm happy to uh, refer, give you the citation from Barbara for Barbara Gibson's work as well, because it's quite yeah. enlightening. I love that. A, a deep interrogation of, of why you do something and how you act in the face of uncertainty is sounds absolutely it sounds like a a dark and cathartic thing to do a little bit which is good you need to you need that right to kick you up the ass sometimes and get you to think about these things because sometimes you get into autopilot and i do a hundred percent of the time not a hundred percent of the time but when you're in clinical practice and you've got a busy caseload you go into autopilot and you don't stop to think or or not just reflect but you know, engage in reflexivity, like you said, and really interrogate why you're doing these things. And that's, it's it's so hard to do, Natalia, for busy clinicians though, right? Because there's so many pressures from the system, from the patients, from your bosses, from uh, putting, earning an income. It's hard. And that is um, one of the reasons for why we need to have these broader discussions about advocacy and, and changing. I might sound a bit too idealistic, I don't know, but I I do think that it's important to reflect about the healthcare systems that mm. we are in and how they may prone us to certainty. Oh, and yeah. as you said, how they may get in the way of us engaging in these mm. reflective and reflexive mm. uh, practices um, because it's not easy. So that's where, you know, I think we need to reflect about our policies problematize these policies, scrutinize the assumptions embedded in these policies. Yeah. And be creative and think of ways in which we can, you know, reimagine our systems, um, our work context. It's it's not easy, but I think we need to start somewhere. Um yeah, I agree. So we've already been talking for an hour just about Natalia. And I, <laughs> I feel like we could keep going for hours. Yeah. We'll start to we'll start to finish. So what so clinicians feel uncertainty in clinical practice in the decisions that they make, not just from diagnosis, prognosis, and, and selecting treatments, but in pretty much every facet of the clinical interaction. Patients feel uncertainty, obviously, because that, that pain sort of makes you feel like that. When's it going to end? And how is this person going to help me? So on and so forth. What does my future look like? From my experience as a clinician for 12 or so years in private practice the whole time just about this is and and i've also read this in qualitative studies as well that patients do look for clinicians who are confident who are experienced who may portray or communicate certainty they this person has had 10 years experience they're a shoulder specialist they know what they're doing they're gonna they can detect it they gave me this diagnosis i feel better so that's a scenario where certainty has helped a patient. What should we should we refrain clinicians from communi- from communicating or acknowledging that uncertainty in clinical practice? Or how do we draw the line between? Because I know I go to a doctor, I do feel better if they say I, I'm pretty sure it's this. Or actually. As I'm saying this in real time, <laughs> I don't think I would like it if they say, it's. I'm certain you have this. I would like them to say, on the balance of probabilities, on the test that I have conducted, I think it's likely that you have this. 
And then I would feel better with that than them saying, oh, I'm not sure. Uh, we need to go and order 15 tests. That would make me worry like you would not believe. So how how do you, I'm not saying how, I'm not asking you to tell every clinician how to act when faced with uncertainty, but how do we navigate that? Because patients, I'm sure you'll agree with me, will respond well to certainty at times, but how do we, sort of not be entirely certain when we are uncertain, if that if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a, a really good question. And I think if we reflect about the two examples that we you gave us, mm. they're both expressing uncertainty, but they're expressing uncertainty in different ways. Mm. Uh, one is really being, you know, I'm not sure. And then, you know, we need to order this and this and that test. And mm. the other one is saying, it is likely, which is also an statement of uncertainty. You know, it's not saying it is this, it is mm. likely that is this based mm. on um, the physical examination that I just performed. So I looked at it, I have asked this question myself, um, and I looked at the literature, you know, to see whether there are different ways of framing uncertainty that are a bit more successful than, than others. And there isn't really a lot of information out there about this. So that's uh, one of perhaps the next steps, you know, trying to identify ways in which uncertainty can be communicated in a potentially more helpful manner. Mm. That said, I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all approach. I think this is very dynamic. Um, different people have different levels of tolerance to uncertainty. So it does require us to, you know, really take an approach where, it would depend on the person in front of us. I think it's it's also fluid. I think even within the same person, you know, at the start of your pain journey, your level of intolerance to uncertainty may change, you know, mm. as pain progresses over time. So I, I don't have a black and white answer. I do think, though, that there are more helpful ways of communicating mm. uncertainty than others. But, yeah, I, I do think that is... It is something that we need to critically reflect about uh, and really engage in reflexivity um, mm. when we are making these decisions. And for instance, if we reflect about, you know, when we say that, that was one example from one of our observations, actually, you know, there was this specific physio who suggested that the patient should use prolotherapy. And then she asked, you know, she confronted him. Do people get better with this treatment? Mm -hmm. He said, oh, yes, people like you do because you have an issue with your ligaments. And, mm -hmm. and then he gave this thorough explanation about why he was mm -hmm. so certain that prolotherapy would work um, mm -hmm. for this person. But bear in mind that prior to, um, to that, you know, that th there was month eight of being pain or progress. Husband came to one of the consultations because I watched them more than once. Mm. And at that point, he she started crying when he presented this new option that no one mm. had to told her about. And, you know, I, I obviously uh, I haven't discussed this with the person, but I could sense or, pertain, or perhaps imagine that she was really uncertain you know, mm. is this really going to help me? Or is this mm. just another, you know, suggestion that came out of the blue? So mm. I think as a clinician, again, it's important to reflect, why am I saying that this is the treatment 
that mm. is going to work this time for this person? Is it mm. because I'm uncomfortable with the fact that this person has been seeing me for months and is now getting better? Is mm. it because, you know, I, I truly believe that this is likely to work even though there isn't a lot of evidence from from trials saying that, mm. you know, it would. So can you see how really scrutinizing how we say things, why we say things might be a way? But yeah, I'm sorry, I don't have a black and white answer. No, that's, I, I didn't expect one, but that's very well answered. Yeah. And I think, I think I'm, I'm satisfied with that personally. I think that is, it is definitely a case by case basis. Uh, I cannot. Oh, sorry. You're right. You're right. Just, just also, you know, tying back to what we talked about earlier, is this fine line between embracing uncertainty in a way that we don't become rigid or we don't paralyze ourselves and we also don't become complacent? Yeah. And, you know, can can we do that in a way that we are also not assuming that this is what people really want? Because um, I think if we listen to people with the lived experience, they will also say, oh, they told me that this was going to work and it didn't work. So they, they will often say, I wish someone had told me that there was a 30, 40% chance or whatever that this treatment wasn't going to work. I wish I knew that before. And I have heard this from people who had surgeries and they were told that the surgery was going to work um, and it didn't. So... I think it's it's more about, you know, not assuming that certainty is really what people want and really trying to use uncertainty in a, in a positive way, um, perhaps even taking the burden away from that individual and putting the burden on science, you know, there are these things yeah. that we don't know, but this is what we know yeah. um, and this is the plan that we can follow. Um, I think that's... Very powerful. Like there are ways of communicating uncertainty without leaving that person thinking that you're unprofessional or you don't know what you're doing. You know, you can, I think it comes back to, to us as a clinician to confidently express that. Um, and also you can't express certainty and just lie, flat out lie and say, this is going to help when you don't know, because we don't have that data. We don't know how an individual is going to respond to a certain treatment or we don't know their clinical outcome because there are so many factors that can influence that clinical outcome. So we should never be 100% certain. Like I know enough about probability that the probability is never zero, like nothing's going to happen or the probability is never one, that it's always going to happen. It's always somewhere in between, you know? So I think as a basic moral imperative and being an ethical clinician, you can't be a hundred percent certain at any time, right? Like even if you have, apart from the fact that you, if you have a chest infection or infection, you might need an antibiotic when it comes to pain, it's a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very contextual. And yeah, um, as you said, even in, in research, right, We when we interpret the data from these trials, it's based on averages and hmm. we also have confidence intervals, you know, 95% confidence intervals. Exactly. It gives us a degree of uncertainty. 100. Uh, so um, how can we, you know, oversimplify this? You're preaching to the choir. I love it. Like, like literally, 
there's some there's something called Heisenberg's uncertainty principle in physics, which means that uncertainty is baked into the foundations of physics and how electrons move. And so if we don't even understand how electrons move, which is what we're kind of made of, then how the hell do we think we have certainty about something as complex as pain? It's absurd. And so I think we just need to be okay with that. And I think everybody needs to read your papers, firstly, and and sort of start to think about it in the first place and start to be an intellectually honest and reflexive clinician and start to have these hard self-interrogating thoughts. I think that's a really good place to start. Is there anything else you want to finish with, Natalia? Yeah. um, What you're saying makes me think of, um, I think his name is Jet, so I can also refer you back to this article. Um, There's a paper called The Human Biology. and in this paper, they also talks about um, genuine complexity. So it's this idea that, because I think we do that a lot in clinical practice, we try to separate things into boxes. Um, you know, these are the biomedical aspects, these are the social, these are the psycho- psychological aspects. And I think it's important to acknowledge that things interact and they change each other through these interactions. Um, I think we tend to isolate them and we think that we are being multidimensional because we are looking at different parts, right, in isolation. But I think if we really are to embrace, you know, things like uncertainty and complexity, we really need to look at the whole and try to appreciate and understand that Various things are interacting and changing each other as care unfolds, as you know, life unfolds. I wholeheartedly agree, Natalia. Where can people find you? Are you on the socials? Uh, where where can people? Yeah, find you? I'm trying to not use Twitter as much anymore since a certain person took over. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to use LinkedIn. I still use it. I, you know, I, it's such a nice way of you know learning more about what other people are doing. So I'm still on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is Natalia C. Costa 1. And I'm on LinkedIn as well, which I'm slowly trying to make that transition. Um, and it's just my name, Natalia Costa. And I have emails from both the University of Sydney, which is my primary affiliation, but also the University of Queensland, where I, I am a, an adjunct research fellow. Um, so I can... I don't know. Do you want me to give you the addresses, and then you can? No, that's okay. We'll we'll we'll, we'll spare you from the the oh. putting your email out in in public. But I'm sure people can find you on LinkedIn and Twitter. Natalia Costa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Jared. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. I knew I would. Me too. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shoulder Physio Podcast with Natalia Costa. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio Podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Tiribalang people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning, and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging, 
and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.